Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Matthew Vincent. This week, we'll be discussing HSBC's 35,000 job cuts as it shrinks in the US and Europe. Jess Staley's future as boss of Barclays after another regulatory probe. Royal Bank of Scotland's new name, which is actually 52 years old. And Deutsche Bank's disappearing compliance contractors. Joining me in the studio to discuss all of this are Stephen Morris, Nick McGaw, Emma Agyamang from the FT, and with our banking editor David Crow dialing in. And our special guest down the line this week, Philip Auger, author of the book, The Bank That Lived a Little, Barclays in the Age of the Very Free Market. So let's start with the breaking news. HSBC has said it plans to shed around 35,000 jobs as part of a radical downsizing of its operations in Europe and the US. It's part of a restructuring to cut annual costs by $4.5 billion and shed $100 billion of assets adjusted for risk by the end of 2022. David, you've just been talking to interim CEO Noel Quinn about this plan. How radical is it? It's pretty radical. It's certainly the most radical overhaul of the bank since the financial crisis. And indeed, Mr. Quinn was saying it is one of the most dramatic restructurings of the bank in its 150-something year history. So it's pretty strong stuff. And where and how will these job cuts come, do you think? Well, the main casualty, if you like, is going to be the European Investment Bank. That's the investment bank that sits in the London headquarters, but is not part of HSBC's ring-fenced UK retail bank. So lots of people in Canary Wharf are going to be losing their jobs. Next up comes the US, where they're also retrenching in investment banking, but also dramatically reducing the size of their retail operation there, cutting about 30% of branches. And also, finally, they're going to take an axe to costs. And that's across the group. They're going to try and do what managers like to describe as de-layering. So that's kind of the third bucket, if you like. So after the de-layering and all of these other measures, what exactly is HSBC going to look like when it's done in three years' time? Well, what's really happening here is they're reducing risk-weighted assets in the European Investment Bank and the US Investment Bank, and they're going to redeploy them in Asia. They're going to do that in Asian investment banking, but they're also going to try to sort of turbocharge this effort they've had for some time now, which is to become a kind of retail banking and wealth management private banking powerhouse for wealthy people in Asia. 
For a long time, HSBC has talked about a pivot to Asia, moving these assets out of low-returning markets and beefing up in Asia. So it's kind of the completion of that pivot, if you like. I think investors are a little bit disappointed that all of the capital that is going to be released by reducing the size of the balance sheet in Europe and America is then going to be hoovered up by this Asian spending splurge. And I think some investors were hoping that you know it would be used in part at least to fund buybacks or other kinds of capital return. But this pivot to Asia and redeployment of capital, that's going to bring risks as well, isn't it? It certainly does. I mean, the outlook in Asia is darkening. First of all, we've had the protests in Hong Kong, and now, of course, the spread of coronavirus and HSBC acknowledging today the risks that both of those factors bring to its business. But saying that nonetheless, look beyond that, medium long term, and there are great opportunities in Asia in China and beyond, and that we are uniquely well positioned to capitalise them. And when I asked the chief financial officer why he wasn't taking a leaf out of the playbook of someone like Unicredit, for instance, which has done this massive balance sheet reduction, is now funding big buybacks, he said, well, Unicredit doesn't have the opportunities that we have. Well, he didn't say Unicredit, but European banks don't have the sort of opportunities that we have in Asia, and we think we can make more by deploying the capital there. I think the other big risk is that Mr. Quinn is an interim chief executive and delivered this plan today, which was very heavy on detail on how they're going to reduce risk-weighted assets in underperforming markets, but quite light when it came to how they're going to redeploy them in Asia. There wasn't a lot of detail around that. And so effectively, they were asking investors to believe them when they said, we're going to reduce the balance sheet in these geographies and we're going to spend the money, but please trust us that we're going to do it in a judicious way that is going to boost returns, even though you can't be sure that we're going to be the ones finishing the job. Yes, and it seems that some investors were a little bit nervous about that, judging by the HSBC share price reaction initially. David, thanks very much for talking us through it. Now, at Barclays, it is all about one job, Chief Executive Jess Staley's. Last week, UK regulators opened an investigation into the links between the bank boss and the disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein. Mr Staley developed a relationship with Epstein and visited the sex offender's island on his yacht in 2015. And on Thursday, Barclays said that the Financial Conduct Authority and the Bank of England's Prudential Regulation Authority had commenced an investigation into Mr Staley's characterisation to the company of his relationship with Mr Epstein and the subsequent description of that relationship in the company's response to the FCA. David, you've been covering this. Can you just explain why this investigation is being launched now? So last summer, when Epstein was back in the news, the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, one of Barclays' main regulators, got in touch with the bank to make an inquiry about Mr Staley's historic ties to Epstein. The bank subsequently wrote a letter to the FCA. And something in that letter about the characterization of Mr. Staley's relationship with Epstein 
caused concern at the regulator. And so they subsequently launched this investigation. Now, we understand it focuses on whether Mr. Staley downplayed his links with Epstein, whether he described the relationship as mainly professional, given that there is some evidence that it was more than that. We all know about this trip that Mr. Staley made on his yacht to Epstein's island in 2015, long after the pair had any kind of professional association. And also, we understand there is a cachet of emails that originate from Mr. Staley's time at J.P. Morgan, which were passed to U.S. regulators by J.P. Morgan and then on passed to U.K. regulators. And something in these emails, we've not seen them, we should say, but we're told that something in these emails suggests that this relationship was chummier. And so basically, the FCA has now launched this investigation into whether or not the bank and or Mr. Staley were upfront about the real texture of that relationship. Stephen, if I can bring you in here, you've been on the trail of the emails dating to Mr. Staley's time at JP Morgan. What are the Barclays board of directors and Barclays shareholders worried about? Well, they're worried that they're going to lose yet another CEO to a misconduct scandal. Remember, this is not just Staley's first rodeo in this sense. He also has an FCA investigation. I think he's the only person to have had two FCA enforcement investigations against him. The former one for his attempt to unmask a whistleblower a few years ago in direct contravention of rules and the advice of his own inner executive circle. So the board at the moment is still standing behind him. They're saying that they think he sufficiently characterised the relationship to them in the correct way and seem to be prepared to back him But if the FCA do come down harshly pending uh, release of whatever's in these emails from his time at JP Morgan, it would lead to another period of turmoil at Barclays. I mean, the shares are already down massively since the financial crisis. And the bank recently backed away from its return targets when it reported fourth quarter results. So it's not a brilliant time. And you've got to think, if you look at the internal roster of executives, there isn't really a natural long-term successor to Jess Staley ready to step up. So it could involve another expensive and time-consuming search out there in the market to try and find someone that can run this transatlantic investment bank in addition to the UK retail unit that Jess Staley has been creating over the last five, six years. But do you get the sense that shareholders might think that a costly and time-consuming search process may be better than putting up with all of the regulatory noise that seems to surround Mr Staley? Well, exactly. One shareholder, one large shareholder we talked to last week when we reported the story said, you know, I've often wondered whether Mr Staley is worth all the trouble he's brought with him. You've got to think if they turned on him and didn't think he was a fit and proper person and didn't have the right strategy, he would already be gone. But ultimately, all eyes are now on the chairman, Nigel Higgins, to see what decision he makes. Does he stand behind Staley through this investigation or does he move him on after six years and and, and try and uh, open a next and, and hopefully calmer chapter in Barclays history? Philip, if I can bring you in here, you've chronicled Barclays' history down the ages in your book, The Bank That Lived a Little. Stephen points out that this is not Mr Staley's first regulatory problem, but it's not Barclays either, is it? It's certainly not, because this is a bank which frequently gets into trouble with regulators, which frequently changes its chief executive and where the share price, it's not just the bank's profits that are a roller coaster, it's the share price as well. Why is it that Barclays seems to 
make its shareholders ride on this sort of precarious route of ups and downs. Is it something specific to the bank? There's a bit that's specific to Barclays. There's a bit that's specific to the industry. I mean, let's just think about Barclays. It's a big bank. It's a high street bank. So it's under a lot of scrutiny, as are all banks like that. What is distinct about Barclays, what is different about Barclays, is that it is pursuing this universal banking strategy, mixing up consumer banking and investment banking. At various times over the last 20, 30 years, the board has been divided on that issue. Shareholders have been divided on that issue. It's a tricky game to pull off correctly. And so that, I think, contributes to this volatility. And that's perhaps what makes Barclays more of a roller coaster than many of the other banks. And is there anything culturally, do you think, in the bank's history that might explain why it seems to get into more difficulty than others? I think maybe there is. I always think of Barclays, if I sort of try and characterise it, as a sort of slightly racy old uncle. It's always there. It's always part of the furniture. But if we go back into distant history around the time of the Second World War, Barclays got into trouble then for encouraging its branch managers to sell insurance policies and allow them to keep the commission on that, a kind of eerie precursor of PPI. Around the same time, it got into trouble for mixing up its client assets with its own funds. Then we go into the whole period of around the banking crisis. And Barclays is frequently at the forefront of these various regulatory issues. So perhaps there is something cultural there, yes. And just finally, do you think Mr Staley can survive the current regulatory issues surrounding him? I think it depends entirely on what the, regu- what the regulators find. I would point out that Mr Staley is 63. He's been CEO for five, six years already. I mean, I would have thought in any case he is coming to the end of his time with Barclays. It's been a, quite a long run for him, certainly by Barclays standards, I would have thought in any case, fairly soon in the next year or so, his time is coming to a natural conclusion and it's quite possible that this will hasten it. We shall see what the regulators come up with. Yes, perhaps someone else will ride the roller coaster. Philip, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Now, what's in a name? quite a lot, according to Royal Bank of Scotland, which has decided to change it, at the corporate level at least, to NatWest, the English bank brand that it owns. It's all part of a strategic shift under RBS's new boss, Alison Rose, which will slash the size of its investment bank, halve the carbon emissions linked to its loan book, and reduce its long-term profitability targets. Nick, you've been looking at the new old name that RBS is going to adopt. What was wrong with the old one? Well, officially, there was nothing wrong with it. It will still be Royal Bank in its actual Scottish branches. They say that the change merely reflects the fact that NatWest is the brand that the majority of its customers deal with these days. RBS, as an acronym, was the name that they used for a lot of their big pre-crisis international expansions, but most of that business is gone now. That said, NatWest was already the biggest brand a couple of years ago when they were being investigated by the US Department of Justice or when the FCA and MPs were criticising it over its mistreatment of small business customers. The reality of it, which the chairman of RBS has admitted in the past, is that between scandals like that and the actual bailout itself that the bank had to take during the crisis, the RBS brand reputation has suffered a lot. 
Whereas NatWest has kind of been insulated from it. I've always thought of it as a benefit of their brand strategy is that the average man on the street doesn't realize that NatWest and RBS are related. And the new chief executive, Alison Rose, wants to take advantage of this, essentially, to help distance the company from its past scandals and symbolize this new era that they say they're going into. So the name change does provide that cosmetic distance, if you like. What else is Alison Rose going to do in terms of strategic change? Well, on the more material front, the most immediate changes will be for its investment bank, which has already shrunk massively over the past decade, but they're going to halve its risk-weighted assets again, primarily by cutting its rates trading business. NatWest Markets, as the investment bank is called, currently employs about 5,000 people. So far, there are no details, but it will inevitably involve some straight job cuts and also moving some of their mid and back office jobs to places like Poland. Other changes might come more long-term. As you mentioned, they've said that they want to cut all of the carbon emissions that are linked to its loan book. Eventually, that could lead to shifts in the makeup of their customer base and maybe the introduction of new types of product. But right now, it's very much a theoretical thing. I mean, they kind of admit that they don't actually know what is needed to do that or even how to measure how big the emissions linked to the loan book are at the moment. But investors have been told profitability will be lower in future. Yes, in a sort of acknowledgement of just how difficult the general environment is right now. They'd previously said they wanted to get their return on equity above 12% this year. They'd admitted last year that that wasn't going to happen. Now they've admitted that it's not going to happen at any time in the mid to long term. And in the short term, how has it all been received? Not amazing. The shares dropped by nearly 7% on the day that the news was announced, which is pretty bad for a FTSE 100 bank. To be fair, that doesn't necessarily all reflect disapproval of the long-term big ideas. Partly, it is that reduction in short-term returns, which, as I say, is not really about strategy. It's just a really tough time to be a retail bank in the UK. The other short-term factor, potentially a bigger factor in the one-day reaction, was that the full-year dividend was a lot smaller than a lot of investors had hoped, despite the fact that RBS actually has really healthy capital levels at the moment. That is bad news for investors in the short term, but the sense that the CEO and the chair both gave was that they wanted to hold back some extra capital to use on a potential buyback of some of the government shares later this year, which given that investors would like this government shareholding to get reduced, could eventually mean some good news down the line. Indeed it could. Well, we'll have to get used to not saying RBS as well. NatWest, NatWest, from now on. Thanks very much, Nick. And finally today, the curious case of Deutsche Bank and the disappearing compliance contractors. It seems freelancers working in key areas, such as anti-money laundering, are leaving because the bank is demanding that they take a 25% pay cut. It's all because of a change in UK tax law. And Emma, you discovered this last week. What is this tax change that's behind the exit? Yes, it's a tax change to what's known as the off-payroll workers rule, often abbreviated, um, funnily enough, to IR35. And basically, that rule is about contractors assessing whether or not they're self-employed and can pay corporate taxes through limited companies, or whether or not they should be paying employment taxes like income tax and employees' national insurance. So what's happening from April is that the government has decided that this rule has been abused by many people, and it's asking companies to assess whether or not their contractors 
really are self-employed or whether or not they should be paying employment taxes. And it's also making them liable for any mistakes, which is where Deutsche comes in because the rules are very complicated and companies, including Deutsche, have decided that one way to just avoid this hassle is to just no longer accept contractors using limited companies. And the contractors are not very happy at all about this, which is why we're seeing this exit. So the contractors presumably have got no choice in this. Yeah, I mean, that's the difficulty. With the changes, there is supposed to be a procedure where contractors can actually challenge the companies if they disagree with any assessment that they've made. But what Deutsche is doing is they're just saying they're no longer going to accept contractors using these limited companies, which is a policy decision rather than a tax decision. So the contractors can't change the business policy decision that Deutsche has come up with. And it sounds like this is going to have quite a big impact on Deutsche and its operations. Yes, definitely. In the team that we heard from, it's a team of about 53 workers focused on change management, specialising in the global financial crime. And the majority of that team are looking to leave, which will, they say, have a big impact on projects. Deutsche says that they've got enough staff to cover it. But, you know, it does sound like it's a difficult situation. It does. Stephen, you've covered Deutsche's many challenges Isn't this the last thing that it needs? I mean, these are people working in areas such as anti-money laundering, where in the past Deutsche's had problems, hasn't it? Well, this is an interesting story for Deutsche for several reasons. I mean, firstly, they have long had problems in their anti-financial crime and AML compliance systems. They've been spanked by Baffin multiple times. The FCA gave them a formal caution for this. And they have traditionally relied on a large army of contractors in Frankfurt and London to help them improve their systems. They are actually in official remediation programs with several supervisors across Europe. So having as many as 53 of a 53-person contracting team abscond in protest at being asked to take pay cuts is clearly not very good for a bank which is you know, facing questions about its IT systems and compliance infrastructure. Deutsche does point out that it has 1,500 anti-financial crime staff on its payroll and it will continue to increase this. And certainly it does seem to be spending a lot of money and talking a lot about improving these systems. But you've got to remember that this is a bank that has been incredibly pressured for costs for many years. They can't really do that much whilst they're in a global retreat about increasing their revenues, especially in a negative interest rate environment. So what the executives can do is pull the cost lever and contractors are traditionally more expensive and less loyal than your full-time staff. So it looks like there's a confluence of several factors that will come to a head by the end of March. And then we'll see. There's also another offshoring angle to this as well, where they're going to send some of the projects being done by these teams in London out into Eastern Europe, places like Romania and Poland, which are becoming increasingly huge centres for European, US and banks from all over the world, really looking to tap into cheaper local talent over there in these sort of huge office developments and not have to pay London wages. Yeah, so they will achieve some of the cost reduction that they need to by the sounds of it. Yeah, and there's not necessarily any quality reduction in that. It's just a bit of a change. You know, in the transition of responsibilities across, some of these projects could falter or even have to be restarted. Certainly. Thank you very much indeed, Emma and Stephen. And that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Emma Agumang, Nick McGaw, Stephen Morris, David Crow, and our special guest, author Philip Auger. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at www.ft.com forward slash banks. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.